it's perhaps fortunate that we find some very strong connections between our readings in Isaiah and in our two chapters from Revelation. The promise of reward for the faithful Jews, the faithful foreigners joining themselves to Israel, and even the eunuchs who who describe themselves as a dry tree of our chapter 56 of Isaiah, the rewards promised to them, seem to have a very close parallel with the symbols, particularly of that new city, the holy city New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God in our chapters from Revelation. Let's read again verses 5 to 7 of Isaiah 56. This is what God promises, um, both to the sons of the foreigner, verse 3, also to the righteous amongst Israel in in verses 1 and 2 and to the eunuchs of verse 4, he says, To them I will give in my house and within my walls a place and a name better than that of sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that shall not be cut off. Also the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the Lord, and we could include ourselves here, to serve him and to love the name of the Lord, to be his servants, everyone who keeps from defiling the Sabbath, and holds fast my covenant, even them I will bring to my holy mountain, and make them joyful in my house of prayer. Their burnt offerings and sacrifices will be accepted on my altar, for my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. I suspect that these words of Isaiah didn't have entirely a literal fulfilment at the time which he prophesied, or even in the immediate future. But they seem to link up very clearly with the promise of that new dispensation that is described in Revelation chapter 21 in particular. But just as a link between the two, it's perhaps helpful to turn to Revelation chapter 3, where we have Christ writing those seven letters to the seven typical ecclesias of Asia Minor, And he writes to the Philadelphians some words here which really provide a bridge, I think, between Isaiah and Revelation chapters 21 and 22. It's chapter 3, and if we just pick up at verse 7, it mentions there that this is to the angel of the church in Philadelphia. And then we read verse 7. These things says he who is holy, he who is true, he who has the key of David, he who opens and no one shuts, and shuts and no one opens. Verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God, and he shall go out no more. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God, and I will write on him my new name. We can clearly see that this is not speaking of a literal city of Jerusalem here, that literally comes down out of heaven from God. And the Philadelphians were not truly expecting to be made into literal pillars in a literal temple. But this is talking about a spiritual temple and a spiritual city of Jerusalem. And it's the same with those symbols of that holy city, New Jerusalem, of Revelation chapters 21 and 22. It's not a literal city that's there described, in those terms, 
but it's symbolically the reward of the righteous of all ages, including the Philadelphians and including the righteous of Isaiah's time. That's not to say, of course, that there won't be a literal city of Jerusalem. Of course, there will be a literal city of Jerusalem in the kingdom age, and there will be a literal temple and a house of prayer for all nations. But that city will really be for um, the ordinary people, and the temple will be for the mortal population of the kingdom to worship at. Not so much a place for the saints, but there's a spiritual city which they um, form part of, which represents the government of the kingdom. And there's also a literal city, which will, of course, be the Jerusalem, the capital of the kingdom of God. If we look over to chapter 21 and look again at verse 2 of that chapter, the fact that this here is a symbolic city is brought to our attention Revelation 21, verse 2. I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. Yes, this is a symbol of the bride of Christ being prepared for its, for the spiritual marriage with Christ. And again, verse 9. This is confirmed to us. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plates came to me and talked with me, saying, Come, I will show you the bride, the Lamb's wife. And he carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the great city, the holy Jerusalem, descending out of heaven from God. So these are symbols representing the bride, the redeemed of all ages, the Lamb or Christ's spiritual bride, of which we hope by the grace of God, to be constituents. Indeed, we find that uh, Jerusalem or Zion in prophecy is often used to represent the whole purpose of God centred around that city and his kingdom. We notice that this holy city, this new Jerusalem, that's brought to our attention, particularly in this chapter 21 of Revelation, is a holy city, the holy city, New Jerusalem. Holiness, of course, is a prerequisite for acceptance by God, by Yahweh. And it's interesting to notice that this idea of holiness is a strong theme, both in our chapters in Isaiah as well as in Revelation. Indeed, there are ten references across those four chapters to the idea of holy or holiness. Again, it's written in the letter to the Hebrews by the inspired writer that without holiness, no one shall see the Lord. So what is this holiness? The essential idea behind holiness is that of separation, especially, of course, separation to God. We think, for example, about the way that Israel was selected by God to be taken out from Egyptian darkness, all the idolatry and the bad practices that were taking place in that great uh, nation. Israel were redeemed and taken out of that, were brought to Mount Sinai, they were enlightened by the laws and the self-revelation of God through Moses, they were brought to be God's covenant people, 
entered into a special relationship with him, and they were thenceforward told to stay separate, to be holy, to stay separate from the ways and even the persons of the heathen, the pagan nations that surrounded them. And in particular, they were to root out those pagan nations that already inherited the land of Canaan, destroy them and destroy their places of worship utterly, take them right out and replace them. While Israel maintained that separation, that holiness from the surrounding peoples, dedicated to the ways and to the teachings of God, they were blessed. We only have to think of the generation in the wilderness that uh, wandered for 40 years. Naturally, of course, in that situation they were separate from the nations, although I suspect they must have done some trading with them to some extent. But basically they were a separate people, and it's written that they served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders that had outlived Joshua, that had seen all the wonderful things that God had done for Israel in the wilderness and in Egypt. And only when that generation died out and they began to assimilate with the peoples of Canaan that they hadn't driven out, they didn't drive them all out, did they? They left some of them. And they gradually began to trade with them. They entered into marriages with them. <clears throat> And they began to adopt their practices and ultimately, of course, they adopted their forms of false worship. And so as their holiness, their separation broke down, so they <clears throat> turned away from the ways of God. That's why holiness is an absolutely essential requirement of the servant of God in order to be acceptable to him and to keep his ways. <clears throat> we go back to our chapters for today in Isaiah, chapters 56 and 57, I think we can pick out from chapter 56 in particular some of the elements of holiness, some of the requirements of holiness that God brings to our attention here by way of exhortation. Let's have a look at verses 1 and 2 of chapter 56. Thus says the Lord... Keep justice and do righteousness, for my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Blessed is the man who does this and the son of man who lays hold on it, who keeps from defiling the Sabbath and keeps his hand from doing any evil. So first of all, God says to Israel and he says to us, Keep justice. I don't think this is so much about sitting as a judge on other people or even the nations that surrounded them, so much as applying or learning how to apply the standards and the teaching of God in a fair and balanced way in our lives, being as much self-critical as critical of others. It's easy, isn't it, to favour ourselves and not to be self-critical but constantly to be criticising others, but... To do justice, we need to be constantly assessing our own way of life, what we've done and what we haven't done and what we want to do in the future, constantly appraising it alongside the word of God so that we can see whether we are, in fact, keeping his ways. God says we should do righteousness. Well, of course, we need to know what God requires before we can do it. Both are absolutely essential. 
James tells us in his epistle that faith without works is dead and equally professions of righteousness without any works to demonstrate it are equally in vain. You know, we have a tremendous advantage over the Israelites of Isaiah's day. This verse 1 at the end of the verse prophesies that my salvation is about to come and my righteousness to be revealed. Well, we've seen, haven't we? And we've got the New Testament that records the salvation that Christ has brought about, the salvation that Isaiah prophesies about here, which Christ has made a reality, firstly for himself and also for us, if we're baptised into him and we believe in the great promises of God, believe in the work of our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus Christ. God's righteousness has indeed been revealed to us and it was manifested to us in Christ, the one who went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil. Yes, we have the example of Christ, a superlative one, isn't it, of how to practice righteousness. Blessed is the man who both lays hold of by diligent study justice and righteousness and who also practices them verse 6 of this chapter again the sons of the foreigner this is ourselves dear brothers and sisters that's us isn't it we're joined to israel the gentiles that have been joined to the hope of israel the sons of the foreigner who join themselves to the lord to serve him and to love the name of the lord to be his servants everyone who keeps from defiling the sabbath and holds fast my covenant even them I will bring to my holy mountain and make them joyful in my house of prayer. So this promise is to us, as much as to those Gentiles who join themselves to Israel historically. Yes, a blessing is pronounced upon those who kept from defiling the Sabbath. You might say, well, this doesn't apply to us, does it? We're not under the law now. Keeping the Sabbath was one of the Ten Commandments, and we're not under the Ten Commandments now. But I do believe that we can and should worship God every day. As we sing sometimes, Each day I rise, I will thee bless, and praise thy name, time without end. But I also think that we would do well to keep Sunday a special day. It is the Lord's Day in the sense that it's the day that Christ rose from the dead. So that's why in the Christian era, that is the day of worship and not the Sabbath. <clears throat> it's a day that we should, I believe, set aside specially for worshipping God, for remembrance, as we do, as we meet around these emblems, and for thinking upon the things of God and meditating upon them. <clears throat> it's not a command, but it's certainly a good practice, isn't it, that we should keep that day special, just as Israel kept the Sabbath special, that we should keep Sunday as a special day to worship God. Let's have a look at Isaiah 58 and verse 13. Just a page or two on. This is what God says through Isaiah to those who kept the Sabbath in those times. If you turn away your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, the holy day of the Lord honourable, 
and shall honour him, not doing your own ways, not finding your own pleasure, nor speaking your own words, then you shall delight yourself in the Lord, and I will cause you to ride on the high hills of the earth and feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father. The mouth of the Lord has spoken. That's the blessing that God pronounces upon those who kept the Sabbath, and I'm sure that he will bless us too if we keep that that day of the Lord, that Sunday, as a special day of worship to him. Not as a command, but because we do it out of love. Going back to chapter 56, verse 2. A blessing is pronounced upon the one who keeps his hand from doing any evil. We well know, of course, that the world around us is full of the bad deeds of those who either know no better or, if they do, choose to do evil. We do know better than they they do for the most part because of our acquaintance with the word of God and the example of our Lord. And there is a definite need, if we are to be holy to our God, to keep our hands away from what we know is evil. It's part of our separation from the world. It's part of our holiness. But equally, if we are to develop holiness as a way of life before God, I don't think it's just a case of avoiding evil or keeping away from bad people and bad places, or that, that of course, is part of it. But positively, it's about replacing the bad with good. If our lives are devoted as far as possible, and bear in mind, of course, we have to do our daily work, we have to look after our homes and our families, there's lots of day-to-day things we have to do, but if as far as we can, we devote our time to prayer, to the reading of God's word and the expositions that will help us to understand it. If we engage in good works for Christ, the one who went about doing good, if we use our spare time in the work of the truth, then this positive activity will automatically negate the other, automatically take us away from the bad places and the bad things. That's the way to be holy, to be positively engaged in, in the good things, to the detriment of the bad. Our incentive for upholding the standards of holiness that God requires of us in our lives is truly great, as is set out in these last couple of chapters of the book of Revelation. And I'd like to close by just reading again some of the words and and also some of the words of chapter 22, which we didn't read. Chapter 21 Verse 2. Then I, John, saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from heaven saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is with men, and he will dwell with them, and they shall be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There shall be no more death nor sorrow, nor crying. There shall be no more pain, for the former things have passed away. A part in the government of the kingdom age and full fellowship with our holy God manifested through Christ is what is being held out 
to us here. Well, let's move on to chapter 21, verse 5. Then he, sorry, then he who sat on the throne said, Behold, I make all things new. And he said to me, Write, for these words are true and faithful. Bear in mind, this is talking about the things that Christ has made new. Christ has actually started a new creation of things through his death and resurrection. That's how all things are made new. So this is all been made possible by the work of Christ. Behold, he says, I make all things new. And he said to me, write, for these words are true and faithful. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give of the fountain of the water of life freely to him who thirsts. Yes, if we thirst after righteousness, thirst after holiness, thirst after the ways of God, then that thirst will be satisfied, says Christ. will be freely given of the water of life. And that theme continues on into chapter 22, verse 1. He showed me a pure river of water of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb. Verse 3. There shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it, and his servant shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. Um, and finally, verse 12. Behold, says Christ, I am coming quickly, and my reward is with me, to give to everyone according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Blessed are those who do his commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. May God bless us each that we might find a place in that new dispensation of things.